Welcome to the Before the Cyborgs podcast. My name is Nate, writer and editor of BeforeTheCyborgs.com, and today joining me, uh, the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio to my Brad Pitt, here, <laughs> it, relative to our discussion, uh, it is Michael Vecchio, also from BeforeTheCyborgs.com. Hello, Nate. Yes, uh, we're going to be talking about Leo and Brad Pitt and, uh, their, and uh, their upcoming movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So I guess that's a fair uh, comparison for today's episode. Right, I figured. I asked you before we got started, did you want to be Leo or did you want to be Brad? I don't know which one is better, but, you know, you win with Leo. That's fine. Like, you know, right. We can have a debate there, which one is better. You know? Right, yeah. And well, then, I don't know. I don't know. They're both... Uh, I think one of the things that we will talk about is how, and as you mentioned earlier, how they're sort of like the last remnants of that star power of of old Hollywood. Not old Hollywood, but, you know, of, of a different Hollywood. Certainly not necessarily the Hollywood of, of the 21st century. Yeah, man, you're making me feel old. Old Hollywood already? I mean, they came up in the 90s. I, yeah. was, I was around then. You know, back, back when Leo was still, you know... Yeah, a youngster. A young, a pretty boy, Leo, when he was doing, yeah. like, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet in Titanic, right. you know what I mean? Back yeah, in the day? Yeah. That's right. Oh, but that feels like ages ago now. Well, that was, uh, you know, Titanic was 22 years ago. Right. <laughs> and, you know, that's something we'll also talk about is, uh, sometime during the break, is how Avengers has surpassed that and Avatar to become the highest grossing movie of all time now. Right, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and for a, a period we thought it wasn't going to do it. It wasn't going to actually beat uh, Avatar, but it squeaked by it. So we, uh, we'll definitely get into that. Right, but today's main topic, as, as we already mentioned with the intro, is that Quentin Tarantino's ninth feature film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is coming out this week. Or perhaps, if you're listening to this late the week before, uh, this, like I mentioned, is the ninth film from the acclaimed director and is another one of those films where he is... It is a historical film, I should say. Not to say... I was going to say going back in time, but I guess he does that in quite a number of his films. Right. Uh, So I I will say a historical film, which is why the second half of this film will be... uh, Sorry, the second half of this podcast will be devoted to uh, Inglorious Bastards, the only other film that he's done in his catalog where he goes back to a specific historical era. Well, and and to make clear, now some people will say, well, well, Django Unchained and uh, The Hateful Eight are also historical, and, and well, they are from the point of view they are set in a in a obviously in the in the 19th century, in the 1800s, in in a specific time period. Uh, what Nate is meaning by historical in term is that their um, Inglorious Bastards actually deals with actual historical events, uh, whereas you know Django. Uh, is pre-Civil War, doesn't really mention Civil War, you know, it mentions slavery, but there's nothing specific uh, in uh, in Django or The Hateful Eight. We just know it's in the Old West in the United States, whereas Inglorious Bastards actually has historical uh, figures as characters, you know, Hitler and the Nazis most prominently. So that's what we mean by historical movie. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood also has these historical characters, of course, uh, uh, Charles Manson, the infamous uh, cult leader, and Sharon mm. Tate, the actress who was one of his victims, and Roman Polanski is in this, and other other figures from 1969 are in this. So that's 
that's what we mean by historical, that there are real characters based on real people in this movie. Right, and also Inglorious Bastards turns, I believe, a decade a decade old this summer. That's right, this is the 10th anniversary, yeah. Right, so this makes for, you know, good timing in that regard as well, uh, just to look back on that. So that will be the second half of this episode. But before we get into the second half, just to not dissuade people who may have not seen the movie already, which is, you know, something you should definitely do, by the way. It's a good movie is uh, talk a little bit about Quentin Tarantino himself. Obviously, he is a director who is much acclaimed, more so in some circles than others, uh, for his own work, and rightfully so. I mean, his filmography, regardless of what you think about him, is uh, among the most consistent, you could say, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of constant output. Uh, Yeah, and I also think what sets him apart is the fact that he... He really is the creator of these works. I mean, obviously, you know, the director, the director's vision on any movie um, is important. But you know, you look at names like uh, Alfred Hitchcock, you know, or, or Steven Spielberg in terms of the great directors. Yet their role is limited to directing. Quentin Tarantino is a writer. He obviously has written the screenplays. His two Academy Awards have been for screenplay. So he's not just a director. He's really the creator of these movies. He, he, he conceives of them, he writes them, and he directs them. So each of his films is really a total vision from his mind. It's really it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. Right, and that applies to, I think, the visual aspects of it as well. Obviously, he's a guy who... But whether you know it or not, he borrows a lot because he's a giant film nerd, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps more so than most other in in the industry, in that he lifts a lot from lesser known, especially foreign films. He's a big fan of, uh, if for example, Kill Bill it draws a lot from uh, a lot of the uh, old school uh, Asian martial arts movies, right. uh, most famously Game of Death and Uma Thurman's Suit would be a very common pull from that specifically and then Reservoir Dogs draws a lot of comparisons to City on Fire the uh, Hong Kong action film right down to some specific shot for shot stuff so like but what what I mean to say is he has a very specific visual aesthetic where you can notice and see that okay what I'm watching right now without even seeing the title card, is that this is a Quentin Tarantino movie, and obviously he has certain trademarks, right? The excessive, some would say excessive, but the violence. The violence. Although I would even characterize it as sort of a, an aesthetic of violence. You know, he, he, makes it, he makes the violence art artful. Right. And then he has, like, like you mentioned, he's a guy who writes most of his stuff. I think most of his stuff is either adapted or he, or it's original from himself. Yeah. I, and I know that Jackie Brown, for example, is adapted from. Uh, it's a, from an Elmore Leonard book. Yes, it's right. Yeah, from yeah. a novel, right? So. Yeah. yeah, I also know. You know, he one of my favorite movies uh, that he did write. He did not direct, however, it was True Romance. Right. And that was directed by Tony Scott, but it was a, a Tarantino script. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and uh, you know, certainly he has. He's written for others. And he has, just, yeah, he has a distinct dialogue style, too, which is something yeah. we'll get into when we discuss uh, Inglorious Bastards, because it has perhaps some of the strongest dialogue scenes of his filmography, where mm-hmm. he puts people in specific 
they're very long set pieces where they just sit and they talk, but there's still that overlying tension there, and that, that also applies with most of his other films, right? Uh, yeah. They're usually gritty. They're usually uh, profanity-laced, you know, mm-hmm. which is why Samuel L. Jackson uh, has been <laughs> such a prominent figure, yeah. figure in all his films. I, I, and and not only that, I'd have to say it's it's the richness of his characters. They're all wildly original, even if they are you know influenced or based on you know art of 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 the East or other earlier films from Hollywood. All of his characters are very inventive, very original, and uh, in- engaging. Even the you know the villains per se, and of course. When we get into Inglorious Bastards, the undoubtedly, even though he is the antagonist, the best character in that film is is Hans Landa. Uh, so it, the stuff that he writes is uh, amongst the most striking, and just it leaves a, it leaves an impression on viewers. These are brilliant characters, mm. which is why I think part of that as well is he's done nine movies, nine of them spread apart too. So you're not, con- and he's not constantly picking up. Uh, giant studio movies where I would imagine there would be a lot of studio interference. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, ironically, his 10th and potentially final film might be Star Trek, though, but that's a different story. But, like, as far as what he's done up to this date, at least, uh, everything that he's done has been smaller in scale, at least compared to the likes of your giant franchise movies, which mm-hmm. affords him that creative liberty to do what he wants. And obviously he has established this credit within the system where he can do what he wants and he knows that he has enough of a support, enough of a backing, enough of a clout to execute that vision. Mm-hmm. Whereas a new up-and-comer these days might not get that same right. leash, you know what I mean, to do what they and want. And of course, you know, he would have found himself in that same position you know, himself in the, in the 90s. Of course, Reservoir Dogs, I mean, that was really an independent movie mm-hmm. and uh you know i spoke of true romance earlier he actually he financed uh parts of tr- of uh, reservoir dogs by writing true romance mm-hmm. you know and so he was sort of that outsider at the beginning and then around pulp fiction he started to get noticed as this guy's uh, a unique and uh, original voice and of course you know by by this time as he said now he, he really has that freedom to do uh whatever he wants right and uh, i don't know if you would agree with this or not but i think for me at least that 94 movie pulp fiction is his his masterpiece which is which is an interesting thing and again we'll get down to this down the line well it's interesting uh, you know to it's like it's like um going through the catalog of da vinci or michelangelo and saying what is their masterpiece when all of their works are masterpieces um so while I think certainly there are films that I think are better than others in his filmography, generally I think all of his films are, are striking works. Uh, so I don't know if I would say Pulp Fiction is the definitive masterpiece over Inglorious or uh, Django. Interesting. What would you? What is your favorite? I guess I, I we shouldn't say best because that's a very subjective term. Right. right? My favorite, favorite. My favorite is Django Unchained. Interesting. And uh, what, except, like you said, most of his movies are pretty well done, you know, overall. 
But what yeah. separates that one from the rest of the rest of the field here? I found. Uh, I mean, again, all of these movies share similar qualities, but I really found the uh, the narrative and the characters in Django really uh, really engaging, really striking. Um, it's funny. Uh, it's it's just thrilling, really, and the performances are wonderful. Um, you know, you can see that this is a guy really in control of his craft. And it's it's a very satisfying movie, uh, as as most of his films are, as all of his films are. So uh, I, I guess I don't know if I could say really there's something. It's the one that struck me the most, and it's the one that I I just personally found uh, the most fulfilling of all his movies. But they're all so good, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And this this I could if I watched them all again, perhaps my opinion would change. But uh, as of now, I I would say Django is my favorite. Mm, interesting. Yeah, it's, you know, like I said, I think I'd go Pulp Fiction, but like you like you mentioned, I don't think that there's a wrong answer you could go with here, really. Uh, I think all of them, collectively, when you look at it, provide this resume of a guy who is very clearly in that notable tier, especially in the modern era of directors, right? He came mm-hmm. up in an era in the 90s where you have the likes of the Coens, uh, Fincher, you know, all these guys that um, film Twitter and the letterbox, like all the film bros seem to really like and I like I often make this analogy is that I think Tarantino is for a lot of people at some point in their lives especially if you're male because he uh, a thing that he does is write very male centric movies, but that's another thing, is that he is somebody's favorite director at some point in their life, especially when you're first entering this world of watching movies seriously or Uh semi-seriously, because I think that he is, and this part of his appeal is that he is able to attract the broad mass audiences without being too niche or too... I I don't want to use the word pretentious, because... It's not really that, but you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, there are other like art house movies that are just tougher to get into, mm-hmm. especially when you're first starting out, than, say, something like a Tarantino, which has more accessibility. Yeah, you know, it seems like he has the potential to be kind of that snobby director because, as you noted earlier, he is that film nerd. He has a, a vast knowledge and love of, of films that his movies, and perhaps to some people they do, you know, they could come off as a snobby works of art from uh, from a guy who thinks he knows it all. But uh, you know, personally, I have always, I have never felt alienated by his movies from a, you know, an intellectual perspective of though this is, uh, you know, like the pure art house for art's sake. They're all very engaging, entertaining, well-made movies that I think are digestible for the 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 film. Uh, historians and for casual audiences he's able to satisfy a large audience right and i like i think that he has obviously he has his flaws i think like i mentioned he kind of has issues writing about and for women and he's although kill bill obviously had the the title not well i guess she wasn't in the title but the main character is uh, is a female yes but even that is filmed through his perspective of you know, we're gonna put this woman through hell and then have her get through the whole revenge thing. I don't like. Uh, in terms of the writing for it, it's not uh, the strong point of that movie. You know what I'm trying to? 
sure kind of get at but uh that you know there's that and he's sort of especially as he's gone on and cre- and he's created this aura around him i guess within the uh-huh. within the community he has this sort of self indulgent tendency where he kind of goes a little too long a little too deep a little too a little too fancy with his with his um with his work uh meaning like and we'll get into this within glorious bastards where he kind of overemphasizes the the violence you know to uh, to a point where it's kind of fetishizing it <laughs> right right uh, which is a, a criticism of him you know uh there's that scene towards the end of inglorious which we'll talk about later where uh it it one some could classify it as excessive and just in saying that other people who critique that could say that I'm just being prude but you know to each right. their own on that that front you know but those are certainly things that for him specifically is something that has shifted over time is he has become more and more invested in his own image you know what i mean and i right. think part of that has to do with the fact that he is working with more high profile casts as he continues to move on obviously right. with this one he has as we mentioned off the top two of the biggest movie stars of the modern era of at least the last 20 years in that movie star movie star sense working with him I think for the first time ever together on camera, at least in DiCaprio a Caprio I believe so. Yeah, I think so. Right, and yeah. then he also has Margot Robbie, who actually gets third billing, as well. Some and obviously I haven't seen the movie, but some people have already criticized the fact that she's barely in the movie. Ah, uh, but that's. But we well, that remains to be seen. Yeah, that rem- yeah, but okay. Yeah, but uh, you know, my point being that there's more high-profile people in this one once upon a time in Hollywood than ever before. Yeah. Uh, which speaks to that point that we wanted to get to about DiCa- uh, DiCaprio and Pitt and just in terms of their overall legacies in, in the face of this, right? Because I, I think that you look at somebody like DiCaprio, you know, he won the Oscar, obviously, a couple years back with The Revenant, and you'd think that maybe he can finally you know, do something fun now that he's, you know, because he went through a whole period where he was just straight up gunning for it. Uh, right, in, right. In more or less words, where he was <laughs> pretty much working with every every notable director out there to try and get it. I know it's interesting because I thought that uh, he should have, at the very least, received a nomination for uh, his role in Django Unchained mm. uh, for supporting actor. Absolutely. that was uh, that, He was fantastic in that film. Yeah, but uh, his co-star Christoph Waltz won that one that year. Right, on. that's right, that's right. But and, and and you know, actually, Waltz could have been nominated for Best Actor. I don't think he was supporting in that movie in any way. But uh, that's another story. Yeah. But uh, yes, DiCaprio certainly was. You know, we I think he was one of the last major big name actors to not have uh, the Academy Award. Right, and I think and that, ultimately, you know, I think he did. He won for a movie that I don't think was his best performance. So you and, know, there's yeah. yeah. And again, that's a I, I I agree with you on that one. That's a that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, uh, you could easily put some of his other ones on there. I know that some people are really high on Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, me less so, but uh, it, it is what it is. Uh, it's, you know, uh, Gangs of New York. Mm-hmm. Even those are. 
any of those could easily go up there as well. Actually, but, one of my one of my favorite performances of his goes way back, uh, where he played a, a mentally handicapped uh, boy in uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Uh, What's Eating Gilbert Grape, and and he he was he was just excellent, just excellent mm-hmm. in that, and he was very young in that movie. So and he delivered in, an astounding performance. So, right. yeah. and he is. This guy, like, and you'd think that after he got it, he might maybe slow down. Maybe he'll do a franchise film, you know, try and make some money. Mm-hmm. Or not that he doesn't have money. Obviously, he has money, but like, you know, what I mean, just really taking a giant paycheck for doing something ridiculous, kind of like what Natalie Portman seems to be doing with the new Thor news that she's coming back to do Thor. Right. Uh, you know, uh, you d- didn't know what kind of direction he could take. He could go anywhere now. Kind of like that weight's off his shoulder now that he's finally won the Oscar. But he seems to be wanting to do this thing, reuniting again with Tarantino, as you mentioned previously, working with him on Django, uh, to do this thing with Brad Pitt, with Margot Robbie, you know. Uh, yeah. In in sort of a meta commentary too, where he plays an actor. Uh, <laughs> he's an actor what? who's playing an actor. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 from what uh, you know, we know from the trailers, he's. Uh, you know, kind of at the end of his career or, you know, winding down. Mm. And, uh, well, and of course, I mean, DiCaprio, I wouldn't say he's winding down, but he's uh, he's now getting, you know, to middle age. So his roles are going to be different than what they were. You know, he couldn't do a Titanic-type movie anymore. Obviously, he's not in his 20s. He has to play an older character now. Mm. So his roles are going to evolve. Mm. And then his... And then... Obviously, his co-star is Brad Pitton's movie, who has taken a different trajectory. I think he sort of has taken a more of a background role in recent years. Uh, he was he had a minor uh, performance in Twelve Years a Slave, and he produced that, I believe, as well. Right, that's right. And yeah. then, but he kind of came up in the '90s. Obviously, he's always been a very public figure. Uh, outside of the movies, outside of his mm-hmm. career, in his relationship with Jennifer, Jennifer Aniston, and yeah. later with and Angelina then, Jolie, uh, that's right. That's you know, right. That kind of has separated himself from his actual career, where he's actually a really good actor. I, I don't think that we kind of give enough recognition publicly for that. Like we see him more as the yeah. Unfortunately, the last you know. 10, 15 years, he's become more known as just a celebrity more than actually for his work. Right. And you I, know, as you said, yeah, the marriage, Brangelina and all that, like, people knew who Brad Pitt was, but not necessarily for his movies, which was unfortunate. Mm-hmm. You know. And then, it's, it, I think it's interesting because he is this guy who, in his own right, has worked with a ton of great directors too, right? He worked early in his career with Fincher on Seven and, and uh, did Tarantino with Inglorious Bastards and then he had an interesting stretch there where uh, he and then he did Fincher again with Kier's Case of Benjamin Button he he does these interesting mm-hmm. uh, he makes these interesting choices too that where he I think that's what separates him from a lot of up and comers today is that he you know where a lot of young actors are attaching themselves left and right to giant franchise movies where that seems to be the way to come up uh, these days. they These two kind of may attach themselves to something that became huge on its own. 
Yeah, well, actually, it's true. If you look at Decap, both of them, they don't. Neither of them have belonged to a franchise. You know, mm. it, it just uh, individual films which happen to be which happen to be you know great. And in, in uh, obviously in DiCaprio's case, he was he was in the the highest grossing film of all time for uh, for uh, twelve years. Mm -hmm. All right, and then I think that's an interesting. Uh, separation in terms of how they approach things now is that they have established this status now where they don't need to kind of attach themselves to a to a franchise which affords them like similar in a uh, case to Tarantino where he, they don't have to do certain things that they don't want to mm -hmm. or that don't particularly interest them which allow them to move forward and make choices that are more intriguing I would say yeah. than your traditional actor but in terms of, I, I know I put you on the spot earlier with the intro there. Like you do prefer DiCaprio to Pitt, eh? Uh, I've generally liked uh, the movies that DiCaprio has been in more than uh, uh, Brad Pitt. And uh, and while I do, you know, I agree that obviously Brad Pitt is a talented uh, performer. I think um, I think DiCaprio is a more versatile actor, and I and and it shows really in in. Uh, in the films that he's been in, you know, so he'll he'll do a movie like like this with Tarantino or or Django Unchained, and then he's very comfortable with the biopics. You know, he did Howard Hughes in The Aviator. Uh, he played um, J. Edgar Hoover, um, and then you know we mentioned you know, he plays a young handicapped boy, and then he plays a a young guy in uh, in uh, Titanic. It, it, like if you look at his filmography, it's quite varied. And you know, all of his performances have shown that, that he's 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 very capable. He's a very versatile and strong actor. So I, I give the edge uh, to DiCaprio as as really of a, a, a he's an actor. You know, he he really represents what it means to uh, take on a role and 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 become the character. Mm. I I think that there are two different types of actors. I think that DiCaprio rightfully so gets a lot of credit because he's a very expressive actor he is i think his most famous move if you can call it that in athletic terms is his signature move being he has he gets to a breaking point <laughs> where he 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 just he has a good cry face is what i, I should mm -hmm. say uh, okay yeah he, he does this thing where he gets to a breaking point and then he just loses it and then it's very strong, very expressive all the time. Uh, in terms of the young comparisons, I would put it early on, at least in his career. Chalamet, Timothy Chalamet has the same thing. Right. Where they can do that thing. Where So maybe we'll, uh, we'll see good things out of Timmy Chalamet in, in that similar vein. But whereas he is very expressive, DiCaprio is, I think Brad Pitt is more of a subtle actor. He's more Gosling-esque, where he kind of plays it cool the entire time, and it helps that he is obviously a very good-looking man, where he can do that, and he's kind of stone-faced a lot. And then from there, when he does get to that breaking point, uh, or when he does show emotion, it kind of contrasts very well. Mm -hmm. So the way that they approach the craft is interesting, and the way that they're utilized by their directors is, is interesting as well, right? Because I think that DiCaprio lends himself well to uh, selling it as pure acting, whereas Pitt 
perhaps gets underappreciated because, uh, like I mentioned, it's more subtle. Right. And then as we also mentioned, uh, you know, besides being a sex symbol, you know, uh, DiCaprio's relationships haven't been like tabloid um, fodder as much as uh, Pitt has, as you mentioned, Jennifer Aniston and Brangelina and, and all that, you know, it was just... Uh, it seems like um, more of Brad Pitt's personal life was sensationalized than DiCaprio's ever was. Mm. Did you think that this could spark a, a second wave of Brad Pitt? Should he want it, of course? Because, uh, like I mentioned, there was a bit of a downturn. Not to say that there was a downturn, but he wasn't doing anything particularly noticeable. Or no, uh, notable is the, is the word. Uh, in in more recent years, whereas he had more of a constant output in the. Uh, I mean, I think the best film Brad Pitt has done in in the last five, six years is Moneyball. Money, yeah, Moneyball is great. The Sorkin script. I yeah, forget, I, I forget who directed that, but yeah, the Sorkin script is great. Yeah, uh, one of those rare movies where there's zero action going on. You might not even care about baseball, and it still yeah, works. Yeah, but it's still great. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, as you said, yeah, should he want it? Uh, for Brad Pitt to, uh, but I think he's content with. Obviously, he his fame is is, is firmly cemented, and his wealth is, and yeah. you know he's he's kind of like a he can be a Daniel Day Lewis type where he chooses, he picks and chooses what he wants to do. Mm. So uh, I'm not sure. Again, I don't know if you have a concrete ranking of this, but you would put those two, and then the likes of Hanks, obviously. And Daniel Day Lewis, as you mentioned, in that upper uh, in that upper tier of at least. I, I, I wouldn't. Years, I don't know if I'd put Brad Pitt in the upper tier of great actors. No, yeah. I wouldn't. Okay. No. Interesting. But again, it also depends on what you're defining as a great actor. I mean, if we're talking about like performance and commitment to a role, obviously DiCaprio and Daniel Day Lewis uh, and Tom Hanks would be in there. I, you know, uh, Tom Cruise could be included in that list if right. you want. Tom Cruise, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I think again, and a lot of these, all five of those names actually came up doing their own sort of thing. Obviously, Tom Cruise has shifted more towards the franchise thing and things, but he yes. he's doing franchises that he, uh, the Mummy, not notwithstanding the Mummy remake, notwithstanding, yeah, that he started, you know. Uh, yes, with the Mission Impossible, particularly yeah, with, with Mission Impossible. Now with Top Gun coming out next year, as yeah, well. Uh, yeah, Top Gun Two. That is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, these are the things that he, you know, had his foot in from the beginning. So it's not like he's joining something. Like he's not becoming the new villain in a Marvel movie. You know, right? That that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where other people have even giant actors like Michael Keaton have went towards that direction, but obviously Michael Keaton never had that up star power that some of the other guys had. Or sustained star power, which is perhaps their greatest uh, feat, is how how long they've managed to sustain that. Because Keaton was a guy who was huge in the late 80s and then kind of faded and is now back. Whereas both Pitt and DiCaprio have maintained that strength throughout the last 20 or so, so odd years, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that being said... um um, I'm very much, you know, we we spoke about Tarantino and, and the two leads here. I'm very, uh, uh, my anticipation is very high for um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Of course, it, it premiered at Cannes 
and uh, critical reviews thus far have, or the, the reviews that have been released have been uh, glowing. And, uh, you know, if you like Tarantino films, you should be at least a little bit excited for this. I know I certainly am, so I'm really looking forward to seeing this. Right, and people should, after they see the movie, look forward to your review, correct, on the website? Yes, I will be reviewing for the site, yeah. Yes, beforethecyborgs.com, check that out there. So, while we talk about that, let's just segue into our midpoint here, where we discuss a little bit of the news today. Uh, this week, which we've already covered, and then plug what you got going on coming up on the site here. So, uh, outside of the review, what, what else? Do you have anything else going on site-wise? Well, I just yeah, I just had a review published on uh, Stuber, which is the latest uh, action buddy cop movie starring Kumail Nanjiani and Dave Bautista. Uh, you know. Save your money. Don't don't waste your time. There's there's way better buddy cop movies out there. And as much as uh, Nanjani and Batista have, you know, pretty good chemistry. There's nothing there's nothing special about this movie at all. So uh, you can check that review out, uh, but don't check out the movie. <laughs> uh, interesting. Plug. Of course, you're free to do so. Of course, but Inter- uh, interesting plug. Yeah. 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 Okay. Anything else? Uh, no, not for now. Uh, certainly, I think uh, you've had some interesting features on the site. Uh, Blair Witch commemoration, 20th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, I recently co-wrote a piece on the rogues gallery of uh, Spider-Man, of course, in, in further, uh, uh, I guess, I don't know if I'd use the word celebration, but uh, to tie into the release of Spider-Man Far From Home, uh, we compiled the list of uh, some of Spidey's best opponents and uh you know their their rich history in comics and the films so you can go back and look at spider-man's rogues gallery through the spider-verse okay and as for me my plan at least right now is to review uh, fast and furious presents hobbs and shaw i am going to go see that movie at least 10 times minimum (laughs) okay movie of the movie of summer guaranteed like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you know, Jason Statham, you can't go wrong, come on. Like, let's go, that comes out next week. I'm sure I'll be talking about that a lot. And hopefully I will actually get to see a good movie this weekend outside of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and that's The Farewell. Which, yes. If it is playing in your city, all accounts, and I can't vouch for this because I haven't seen it yet, but... All accounts are saying that you should go see it. So if it well, is, and it currently has a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. So right, and I've if that means anything to you. Yeah, if that means anything to you, definitely check that out. If it is playing in your city, which I mean, if it's playing in my city, chances are it's playing in yours. So check that out. But now moving on to really quickly the news of the week. Uh, what would you say the biggest news story of the week would be? Uh, well, yeah, we're recording July twenty fourth. Uh, certainly the big movie news has been that uh, Avengers Endgame has officially passed the box office intake of uh, Avatar to become the highest grossing film of all time. This is not uh, this is not taken into account inflation. So if you're if you're really a purist for you know math and stuff, the highest grossing film remains um, Gone with the Wind. But uh, you know outside of inflation. Uh, Avengers Endgame is now the the biggest movie of all time. Uh, uh, see, like I think if you ask Marvel fans, they would tell you frankly, my friend, they don't give a damn. 
very good. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. But uh, I don't want to harp on the whole Marvel thing, because we've done that before. But yeah. what I do want to ask is, are you are you okay with this the uh, th- this idea that uh, Avengers Endgame, especially well, I, the, the way that they did it too, they re-released it with a new end credit scene. So, well, you know, personally, I I I was I didn't like the fact that Avatar was the biggest movie of all time. Mm. I'm I'm not really a fan of Avatar, and we may have discussed this earlier. So, for me, the fact that Avatar had that title, personally, it bothered me. So I'm glad that it lost. Uh, but from the other perspective, I think Marvel, you know, besides re-releasing it, they really have worked up to this moment. 22 films, 10 years. So they, 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 it wasn't just one movie that got them to the top of the box office. It, it was a 10-year project, a slow buildup of universe building. So it, it was well-earned, I think. Right. And going back to our previous discussion about Pitt and Di- DiCaprio, right, Marvel is this company that no longer needs, they have star power, uh, as they announced this week with the Phase 4 announcements with Portman coming in, Tony Leung is doing a movie for them, uh, the rising star Aquafina, who's also in The Farewell, is doing something for them. Like, a bunch of people are doing movies for them now, but they don't yeah. need, they don't need, my point being, they don't need that star power in order to make... Uh, make a lot of money at the box office, right? They could pretty much cast anybody off the street and still, because they have built up such a giant fan base, sell this yeah. movie without it. Obviously, having it doesn't hurt, but they could do that without it, which is why, you know, uh, you could argue that Pitt and DiCaprio are the last remnants of the guys who can sell you on, you know, name title alone in the, in right. the trailer. You know, I think back to the old school trailers where, you know, you had that old school narrator guy and he'd say in his very uh, booming voice. In a world, yeah. You know, where he'd be like, Leonardo DiCaprio. That's Brad right. Pitt, that's, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You yeah. don't get that anymore because they don't need it, right? Like, you that's had, right. Like, you had no idea who Tom Holland was prior to uh, Spider-Man, for example, you know what I mean? And many people still won't know who that is. Exactly, like they you know, just be, yeah, yeah. They don't, and that's my point, right? Yeah. And it's it's in, interesting the way that the uh, industry has gone in recent years, where we've cut out that sort of need for that star power too, in the face of that. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, speaking of star power, though, in terms of big names, at least the other big movie news of the week is the fact that. Cats, the uh, adaptation of the stage musical, released its first trailer this week, and it has a giant cast list of <sighs> names that you would know, but the results, shall we say, in terms of what we saw in that two-minute trailer, have been uh, atrocious. Well, okay, let's just be frank. That It was absolutely horrific. Yes. I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm sure there's people out there that think it's fine, but... Uh, a large majority of people online have have voiced their disgust with, not disgust, sort of a, a revulsion. It's like the uncanny valley, the, the CG human cat hybrids, and it's it's unsettling. It 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 doesn't look right. It's it's, it's very weird. Dude, I, if you haven't seen this trailer, uh, you know, watch it. But you know, be warned. It it, it it's creepy. It's creepy. 
do you think that that's just the way things are heading? Obviously, uh, say uh, last week uh, the Lion King came out, and it's introducing this new photorealism, and then we're kind of blending this technology. But it see the thing that's weird about this cat thing is that it kind of wants the best of both worlds, you know? Well, yeah, it kind of you know doing I, this photorealism with these actors' faces ingrained in them, which makes it look weird. I actually, you know, when I first uh, heard that the project was going to be made, Cats, maybe I, I naively assumed that they were just going to have the stage costumes, you know, just like people in makeup to look like cats as they do on the stage. Mm. I would have never, honestly, I, I didn't even cross my mind to think that they would attempt CG. And boy, were our nightmares realized. Like my my thing is, you shouldn't do it half and half, right? Either go full animation and have the actors voice them, you know, as anim- right, right. Instead of having their faces, it's like the genie, you know, Will Smith's genie kind of thing. Yeah, but this is more. This is worse, yeah. Because I think the genie is uh, obviously not a real life thing, whereas cats are real, and then it has that. Yeah, kind of photorealism yeah. effect where you can see the fur, and it's a weird mix uh, overall. Yeah, and and just like you know, seeing like this creepy Judy Dench face and and uh, Ian McKellen in there and uh, Jennifer Hudson, their faces on these cat bodies, and, and James Corden is like this fat penguin yeah. type. Cat. Oh God, yeah. it's bad. It's bad. I, you know, it's interesting because. I mean, Cats, I wouldn't personally classify it as one of the classics of the stage. Well, I mean, it, to, it, it to, had that giant Broadway run for a long time in the... Right, uh, no, and, and I, it has been successful on Broadway. But, you know, to me, when I think of, like, the great Broadway musicals, it's The Sound of Music, it's, it's Les Miserables, it's uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, mm. you know, it's... Uh, uh, Miss Saigon, like Cats, is has always been to me kind of that that strange uh, outside, not outside, but it's kind of like, it's that kind of weird musical. But despite that, it has creative costumes and creative staging. But what we saw in this trailer is just I, I don't know. I I, I don't I I don't want to see it. I I don't know. Yeah, but, but what you're saying is that this movie is probably going to make like five hundred million, six hundred, seven hundred million. Isn't it? Possibly. Possibly. I mean, I, I, independent of that, I think that they say that, you know, no press is bad press. Uh, no press is bad press. You yeah. Know? But I, I wonder, you know, similarly as to the negative reaction to the Sonic the Hedgehog uh, trailer, if we will see a change in the cat's animation. Because really, the, the backlash has been quite quite negative on this well because of the sonic i mean the sonic thing they they delayed that movie actually today uh again because they had to rework the whole character design for sonic Mm -hmm. on a limited budget which is a problem right with these kind of things when you want to go back and do it uh i personally don't like reacting to fan backlash like you already did your thing commit to it you know what i mean you know I, i don't like backstepping like you made but your- if it's such a, a vocal and visceral reaction, you know, there's something to consider. Yeah, well, I mean, like you made your bed, you gotta sleep in it, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I, I don't even know why. You know, Tom Hooper is the director, or any of the people that worked on this. How they thought that that was acceptable, that imagery. Hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but 
I've never been a big musical guy. Not super familiar with Cats, to be honest with you. But I, I still think it's going to be financially successful in the realm of the public sphere because it has that people's attention. Right yeah, now, but it's least. for the wrong reasons. <laughs> yeah, but people will see it similarly to why people bought that William Hung album after he... Uh, well, but, so, but they, they've seen it because it's so bad. Is that yeah, what you're saying? You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah well, so. but, you know, certainly I don't think Judy Dench wants to be in a film that people are seeing because it's so bad. You know, that's not that was not the intention. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the, there's so many people in this movie. Taylor Swift is in it. Yeah. Uh, no, exactly. I mean, they signed on to Cats because it's an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical that's been successful. Yeah. But not because they wanted to be part of some freak show movie. Yeah, that being said, we will reserve our judgment for real. Well, until of course, it comes but out. I'm just saying, based on the based on the minutes, two minutes we saw with the trailer, it's uh, it's creepy. Yes, I agree with that in it's, full full force. Yeah, but moving from a potentially bad movie to a movie that is actually pretty good overall. Unless you had more to add. Uh, uh, about, oh, are we talking about Inglorious Bastards? I, I was going to segue, but I just wanted to know where. Yeah, well, no, I think it's a great film. I don't think it's a pretty good movie, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, off the top, I would say you think that this movie is is really, really good. I think it's it's good, but it's not the best kind of thing. But we'll, we'll start with you, Michael. Uh yeah, so we're going into uh, so we spoke about Tarantino obviously at the top, and so we're going to we're going to look at specifically at one of his films. You know, his nine movies in his filmography, and this is the one that uh, is now ten years old, Inglorious Bastards, and uh, it is a um, it's an alternate history, a I guess you alternate history, a fantasy type of thing. A set in uh, Nazi-occupied France. In fact, the the beginning of the film starts off once upon a time in Nazi-occupied France. You know, like some sort of fairy tale, mm-hmm. and it, it tells the story of uh, a group of uh, American uh, soldiers who call themselves the Bastards, and they are on a mission to kill any Nazi that they that they meet, and obviously get to Hitler and. Uh, aside from that, we also have the uh, uh, the, the Jew hunter who is uh, going through Europe, rounding up uh, any Jews that may have escaped the concentration camp. So this is a an alternate history sort of. Uh, it's been called a Jewish revenge flick. Uh, it's it's a uh, it's a parody of of Nazism. It's a parody of of war films. But it's uh, and, and it's a bloody good time. It's a it's a it's a history. I guess we, we all wish could have happened if only Hitler would have been killed, um, you know, sooner. And of course, spoilers for those who haven't seen the film. You know, they do get Hitler in the end. He does get killed. So this right. is a an, an indulging fantasy of what could have been. And putting the vengeance in the hands of uh, Jewish uh, protagonists, all while featuring one of the best screen villains uh, that's perhaps ever been written. Wow, that is high praise, high praise. But uh, as you mentioned, alternate history. We'll we'll see whether he does that. Tarantino does that again with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, in terms of altering a bit of the past to 
suit his narrative, whatever narrative he's going for. Like you mentioned, obviously we know that Hitler did not die at the hands in in a cinema at the hands of Americans, but um, we'll see what American Jews, American Jews, yes. (laughs) But we we'll see where that goes from there. I I think that there's sort of a meta commentary, and we'll jump right to the end there. At least the last line where Pitt's character says, I think this might just be my masterpiece. And it, it's almost as if, at least I interpret it as Tarantino kind of talking to himself there, where he legit, I think he thought that, maybe he still does, that this is his, in his estimation, his masterpiece. Uh, I, I, well, I, it was. it's interesting that at the time, it was his highest grossing film. Hmm. You know, so up up until that time, uh, you know, that it was his most successful movie, and, and certainly uh, quite unlike anything that he had ever done. And it still remains, as you you know, we mentioned at the top, it still remains quite unlike anything he's ever done. Um, you know, most of his films up until that point, from two thousand nine, were set, you know, in the in the modern in the modern era. Uh, and this was, of course, before Django Unchained and Hateful Eight. So this was his first really historical movie. Now, this is going back, we're in World War II now, you know, and we're not in the United States. And we're talking about real villains, the Nazis here. And mm-hmm. so it is, it is sensitive material. Of course, uh, you know, the, the crimes of, of the Third Reich are still very, uh, very real. You know, we still, obviously we can't ever forget what happened during the war. Mm. And I, I think something that's very interesting with this movie throughout is that a surprising little amount of it is actually in English. A lot of it is in German, in French, in parts of Italian even, uh, <laughs> towards right. the uh, bad Italian, as far as I could tell, obviously. Yes, You'd be yes. more of an expert there. Yeah. But he plays it for comedy. You know, there are very serious moments, but I think that even for somebody who's not as high on the movie as, say, you are, I can agree with you that there are fantastic moments in this movie. I, I'd argue that the opening scene where uh, Lando goes into the um, the house where that one guy is harboring... Uh, the French farmer. Yeah, the yeah. French farmer who is harboring a bunch of uh, Jewish people, a Jewish family underneath its floorboards, I think... It's it's a scene where again there really isn't any violence until the very end. It's uh it's like a fifteen minute long scene where yeah. there's minimal cuts and you see this. It's just the and, and yeah, just, yeah, just through the dialogue he's building tension because you're not sure where this is going to go. Right, and then he yeah. makes some very choice tactical decisions too. In that particular scene, he doesn't use close ups until we get to the point where. He realizes that he's he's known all along that they've been underneath his floorboards, mm-hmm. or he's he's deduced that they're underneath his floorboards, and then yeah. you, you see him break down. There's the tear that goes down in the farmer's eyes as he realizes yeah. that he has to sell these guys out. And That's right. It, it, it's just a very powerful moment. I, I I also love the fact that you know he he like you said it's a 15 minute scene. He doesn't rush any of this. It's it's a slow build up and and you and you really get a sense, especially of Hans Landa, played by Christoph Waltz, of just how how sick this guy is, mm. but just how sophisticated and and cool and how indifferent he is 
to the fact that he's you know about to order the execution of, of a family and he's he does it so it's just so banal it's so you know there was a there's a, a phrase that was coined uh, by a, I'm sure if you remember the, her name from our political science oh, uh, Hannah Arendt Hannah Arendt yes the banality of evil that's right yeah that's exactly it that's right I, yes, and I and Landa and Landa is a perfect ex- is a example of the banality he does his job which happens to be rounding up and killing people as if as if it's nothing, you know, as if it's just another duty, part of his checklist. All right, and he takes pride in the fact that he holds the title of, as you mentioned earlier, the Jew Hunter. Yeah. Right? He kind of embraces that, and uh, I think in terms of characterization, it's a good building-off point for who he is as a character, and I think it, the movie is helped by the fact that it requires very little exposition in, in terms of, like, everybody knows that the Nazis are bad guys. Like, you don't need to establish mm-hmm. that they're bad or justify why they're bad because everybody already knows that they're evil, right? So there's, yeah. there's no need to get into unnecessary backstory there. You know what's going on pretty much from the get-go, uh, what's happening. And there's, like, because this is a movie that has very minimal in terms of actual plot, right? Like, it's not a super intricate, like, oh, we got to plan a heist, it's got to do this or that, and, you know, kind of thing. Well, the plot is, you know, there's two plots. Landa's, well, there's several, there's several subplots, mm. right? But, I mean, the main, the main plots are the bastards trying to kill Nazis and get Hitler, and Landa... Uh, rounding up Jews and 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 helping to plan a movie premiere. Those are really the big two main plots, right? And I think that he kind of weaves them all right. I don't think that the interconnectedness between the uh, bastards and the whole cinematic really tie together when it comes to the end point. I would argue, but I really like that bar scene. That, that oh yeah, which up. is another slowly developed. You know, that's at least twenty or thirty minutes that scene. Yeah. Oh, he has. Yeah, I think yeah. that it's it's really this movie is strongest in those areas. It's those. There's three, right? The one that we mentioned in the uh, farmhouse, the yeah. one in the bar, and then the one at the restaurant, which is I think un- underrated among watchers. Between uh, a person that we haven't mentioned, the cinema owner. Uh, played by Melanie Laurent. Right, right. Uh, who uh, is an escapee from said farmhouse. And then, right, so she's a Jew yeah. who escapes, and uh, her, her family was killed by Landa, right. and uh, now takes on an assumed name, and she's running a theater, uh, a cinema, in, uh, in Paris. Right, and yeah. she re-encounters uh, Landa, at this uh, luncheon, if you can call it that, yeah, and then they have this kind of tension of does does he recognize her? Does she? Uh, does he know who she is? Because she has taken on a. An well, she certainly knows who he is, right? Yeah, she, she certainly does. And then there's like this the sense of I got to keep up this facade that we don't know each other, even though I, you know, the one thing I want to do is exact revenge in that exact moment. And there's yeah. like. This fear within her, but also this anger, yeah, and this resentment against him. And and it's funny how he can be Landa, and this, and then we'll talk about Christoph Waltz in a moment. How he can be both charming, but also very intimidating. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's just you know, casually scooping uh, 
cream onto his uh, on his strudel there, and you know it seems like just like a nice lunch. But he's at the same time he's grilling her on right. how she got the theater, and uh, that you cannot have a black man be the projectionist. Are we clear? You know, all the while he's just you know eating and smoking very casually, and mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's a great scene. It's a great scene. And then of course when he leaves the room, uh, Emmanuel. Um, starts to cry she's she she's she was holding it in the whole time you right know? and i i like that the fact that he managed to stay on that shot and just let her have that release yeah. too uh was a very smart decision overall uh again and we'll get we'll get into it i I think that the ending for both of these characters arcs doesn't really work within the whole thing that they build up but we'll get to that point uh speaking we'll get to that point when we discuss the ending itself but what I wanted to jump to from there is uh, from there we get to the other big scene being the bar scene in which we get introduced to Diane Kruger's uh, Bridget von Hammersmirk (laughs) yes she's a German spy yes who is uh, also a very famous actress at the time as as well I believe Uh, yeah so the character she's a German actress yes but she's also working with the Allied forces to, uh, you know, bring down the Nazis. Mm. And, uh, yeah, that bar scene, uh, as you mentioned, it, it's, again, slowly developed, but it's really effective um, because there's so much suspicion in the air. We have uh, Michael Fassbender. He's, he's playing. He actually is, Michael Fassbender actually is German. Mm-hmm. But he's playing a British soldier, as, pretending as a, to be a German soldier. Yeah, as is Diane Kruger. Well, she's uh, yeah, she's actually German. Yeah, yeah she's actually German. As but, well. so, but she's playing a German woman, so that's okay. Yeah. But but it's funny that Michael Fassbender is German, but he's playing a British character pretending to be German. Mm-hmm. And anyway, in this bar scene, you know, they're posing as Nazis, and there's there's a lot of suspicion about his accent and his mannerisms and. Tarantino just really builds this up. Like, are they going to be discovered or not? And, you know, there's a drunken soldier in there. And is there is their cover going to be blown at any minute? And then it all it all culminates in this in this big shootout where everybody gets killed. And it's uh, it's a it's another great scene that just builds up slowly and delivers uh, fantastic, fantastically. Mm. I think that. What gets undersold about this movie is that a lot of these secondary characters work well, right? I think that, as you mentioned, Fassbender's great, and he really only has the one scene to work with, but he is great in said one scene. I like how the one thing that gives him away is not particularly the way that he talks or his verbal cues, per se, or even his persona. It's his... You know these things that you don't even think about the way that he puts up three fingers to order. That's right. You know, yeah, which are a, a slight cultural difference. Right. Yeah. That you know one might not pick up on. And yeah. I think it's it's one of those things that very smart move overall uh, in terms of like you mentioned building that scene. I I don't know if it works quite as well outside of these three major scenes for me like. The introduction of the bastards for me in that in that forest where they uh, attack these Nazis. I don't know mm. if that scene particularly works for me because it's very American-centric too. Like mm-hmm. the way that they introduce the guy that they refer to 
lovingly, I should mention, as the as uh, the uh, bear Jew, uh, which is uh, this guy, played, which is the, this guy played by Eli Roth, who yeah. beats people with a baseball bat, right? And right. the way that he is introduced has this similar buildup, but the payoff is more comedic in terms of I I, I characterize it as comedic. I don't know if you feel the same way. Uh, of how he comes out of the uh, the tunnel and then he spouts these things about how yeah well he makes a bunch of baseball references yeah, and yeah. Uh, very American centric as I mentioned yeah. like this idea of America is the best you know kind of thing which uh-huh. I I don't know if it works particularly well in comparison to the rife tension that we see. In some of the other films, but I understand that there are certain tonal shifts. Although I have to say that you know, and as you mentioned, the film is not even half of the more than half of the film is not even in English, and I never did find a, an American bias. I never found it to be like a chest thumping USA USA type of movie. Personally, like you know, to me, the thing that Tarantino said brought down the Nazis was the cinema itself, the movies. You know, in his alternate reality, uh, it was the movies that brought down the Nazis. And so I love, I love that. You know, Tarantino is such a lover of the cinema, and in his movie, he made sure that it was the movies that were a key part of the the, the destruction of Hitler and, and the Nazis. Well, that that's part of the uh, key revenge plot that we should mention, right? Is yeah. the fact that the cinema owner, uh, Shoshana, or I forget her fake name, Emmanuel, yeah, Emmanuel, right? Her whole plot is to uh, trap these German high-ranking German officials, including Hitler himself, in this cinema where they're uh, watching this premiere for this propaganda movie, yeah. right? And then burn it down. Uh, subsequently, sacrificing in a way cinema itself in order to achieve, to kill them, yeah. Yeah, achieve a common good, yeah, right? That's right. And then subsequently, the bastards are organizing their own plot, which is independent, I should mention, of the uh, cinema. Of her plot, yeah, uh, they don't her, even know. They, yeah. don't, they don't even know. Their plan is to infiltrate the premiere with bombs strapped to their uh, strapped to their legs and then blow the whole thing up. So results-wise, their goals are the same, right? But yeah. they don't. They're unaware of one another, nor do they interact. I don't think at any point in the movie. No, actually, that's. Uh, you're right. They don't. Uh, uh, Shoshan. They have their own. They have their own thing going. Their own plots. Right. But they're yeah. all tied together by this one central premiere, right? Yeah. And, and actually, that's another interesting subplot: is the this propaganda movie, uh, which you know, in it. So the star of this movie. Uh, no, this propaganda, this movie within the movie, it's based on the exploits of this German soldier who, who killed uh, hundreds of uh, enemy soldiers from a bell tower, and he stars in this movie about his own, um, you know, uh, feats, and he's trying, he's he's aggressively coming on to Shoshana, and uh, you know, in the end, uh, you know, doesn't take rejection very kindly, and. Uh, confronts her until you know. I guess uh, not to go into spoiler territory. She uh, finally gets her revenge on him, but uh, you know she also uh, takes a bullet, <laughs> if you will. Right, and then we're getting to that point where I, I think that there are certain issues with that ending as well. But I think that is the weakest thread 
among them all is that whole whole thing where this guy is basically so infatuated with the cinema owner, with Shoshana, that yeah. he uh, uh, separates himself from everything else that's going well, on. Well, yeah, it's a, his, he's like, he's, he's also trying, he's trying to put off the image of, oh, I'm a Nazi, but I'm not a bad guy. Well, I, you know, I really, I didn't want to kill these hundred guys from the bell tower. I just, I just did it. I don't look at me like a Nazi. I'm not a crazy guy. I'm a good guy, you know, but in the end, he really is uh, a demented person, like all of them. Right, right. And I, I don't think he realizes that. And there's that sense of uh, toxic masculinity in that kind of portrayal as well, right? This, <laughs> especially when he comes on to her towards the end against her will when he tells her to leave, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and among that. But for that specifically, I think I, his involvement is central to the plot, yet he is sort of not... Uh, in a weird way, if yeah. that makes any sense. Well, it, it's the film that he's in, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's central to the plot. It's central to the plot from the fact that he's the one that also gets the premiere of this propaganda film at her theater. Mm. Which is like the small yeah. indie cinema, which might be a nod to Tarantino himself. Yeah. You know, who... Yeah. It's also, you know, and, and going back to... Uh, the, as I said, how Tarantino's promoting the cinema destroys the Nazis. He's also, um, it's his portrayal. I mean, because we've seen Nazis portrayed in films many times. And, you know, this is one of the, the, the few times that we don't show them, besides Landa, few of them are shown as an actual threat. They're shown mostly as, as incompetent clowns, you know, dangerous and, and murderous clowns. But... You know, especially Hitler, it's just like a man-child uh, who, who are really, you know, should be mocked and ridiculed and belittled. Right, because, like, they're watching the movie at the premiere, right? They're sitting there, they're watching the movie, and what we see of the movie is just the sniper in the bell tower just shooting down, presumably, these opposition troops, presumably yeah. Jewish, and then he's just laughing at this senseless violence. Hitler, yes, yeah, yeah Hitler yeah, yeah. is, yeah, yeah, uh, at the senseless violence that is occurring on screen, and you think none of this is particularly funny, right? Like, yeah, even if you are in opposition uh, or in support of what's happening on screen, as would be the case with Hitler, right? Yeah, you shouldn't be laughing at such subject matter. It's not like they're telling <laughs> jokes, you know what I mean? And and at the same time, uh, Hitler. Leans over to Joseph Goebbels, who's the minister of propaganda, and you know he tells him, "This is the best film you've ever made." And Goebbels starts crying. You know, I have Hitler's approval. Mm. I am complete. You know, just how infatuated these guys were with with this ideology and Hitler Hitler's approval. Mm. Yeah, and then I, I think another interesting point while we're talking about like I I I think. F- that the uh, this, uh, the guy who is the lead in the uh, fictional movie is one of the weak points. I would actually argue, and you might disagree with this, that Brad Pitt, for all his starring role in this, isn't that significant to the overall movie. Like, he's not in the movie that much, and when he is, I, I'd argue that his performance uh, isn't... We're talking about uh, memorable Brad Pitt performances, and I don't think this is one of them. 
um, especially you know when you have such a strong commanding performance from Christoph Waltz. Uh, I guess all of the performances would seem inferior in, in that respect, but uh, I, I, I don't particularly like. I didn't particularly like Brad Pitt's character, his uh, or his portrayal, his performance. I, I would agree. I think Brad Pitt is there as the name, the star power name, but he doesn't live up to that in terms of he's certainly not the star of this film by any means. Right, and he plays that. He, he plays with a weird accent in this movie, like it. it kind of works but it kind of doesn't because it kind of hams it up a lot yeah yeah uh, and, and sometimes it's hard to understand them actually yeah you know and i i'm not sure if that was particularly the correct choice but yeah. I, he's not in it enough that i would consider him to be a major factor even in that like he leads the titular characters right but the bastards yeah the yeah. bastards but he's not uh the most prominent I would yeah, I would argue they could replace him with any old other soldier and it could still execute pretty much the same way. Right. Uh, overall, yeah. uh, like you said, the star of the show here really is Christoph Waltz. And, yeah, so let's talk about him, you know, because you really can't talk about this movie without him. Mm-hmm. Obviously, won a number of awards, including the, the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Um, was a relatively, un- was an unknown in, in the North America, he was a German, an Austrian German actor, uh, known in Europe, uh, but took off after this. And as Quentin Tarantino has said himself, this may be his best, the best finest character he's ever written. In fact, uh, he also said that if he couldn't find the right actor to play Landau, he wasn't sure that he could even make this film. Mm-hmm. And so Christoph Waltz. I mean, what what really can be said about this 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 performance? We've t- we've talked about how he's charming and sophisticated, but also calmly sadistic. Um, he's very suave, but very calculating and cold. And he speaks English, and he speaks French, and he speaks German, and he speaks Italian mm-hmm. fluently. Um, it's it's just it's it's an amazing it's an amazing performance a well deserved Academy Award the first of his two Oscars right. both for Tarantino films but it's a it's a fascin it's a I mean he's a bad character obviously but he's such a great character and mm. uh, he couldn't have been played better I think uh, it's hard to imagine anybody's doing what Christoph Waltz did with it well like you mentioned he he has this. Uh calmness uh these nerves of steel under pressure where he kind of holds his cards tight to his chest where he knows information but he doesn't reveal it and part of that slow reveal is what makes those scenes that are long and winding and mostly conversation based so strong is that he slowly and this ties into uh Tarantino's filmmaking as well right of how those cards become revealed right yeah, when he finally sets them down on the table, and shows the winning hand. Uh, yeah, the way that, that that is executed has a lot to do with his performance. The way that he can sort of make a joke, but it's sort of menacing as well, and then kind of defeat. Yeah, like he he's very good at taunting people. Mm. Yeah, like the tease, you know, when he confronts Bridget von Hammersmark about her cast. Mm. You know, and, and how did you get? And, I, and the thing is, because he knows he's playing with these people. Like, 
as you said, he probably knew the whole time those Jewish family was into the floorboards, but he's toying with us and the farmer. Mm-hmm. He knows for a fact that Bridget Hammersmack is a is a is a spy, yet he's toying with her. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he or when he's interrogating Shoshana in the in the cafe, he may or may not know. I see that, that that's when that's when that one we're know. not quite sure. But even if he doesn't know, he's still teasing her. Mm-hmm. You know? And there's that tension that he might know, right? Yeah. Uh, which is which is interesting. But like the one thing that I really had an issue with in in regards to his arc, and less so in regards to uh, Melanie, Melanie Laurent's uh, Shoshana's arc too, is the way that it concluded. Though I agree with you that the performance is great throughout for Walt, but the way that they kind of wrote the ending is kind of weird for me. So, uh, full spoiler here, he ends up deciding to sell out the Nazis at the very end uh, by um, help by not revealing the plot to Hitler, thereby allowing the uh, bastards and, by extension, so Shoshana, to have success in their plot, right? Right, in uh, exchange for immunity. Immunity, among other things. You know, he, so he's going to, he demands that uh, he gets the... You know, Congressional Medal of Honor from the United States government, and he gets a cabin in Nantucket, and yeah. you know he's absolved of all his Nazi crimes, in effect, for allowing the plot to kill Hitler to go through. Right, but uh, so which shows to me he's um, again unlike any most Nazis that we've seen in cinema, he's he's not even so much, he's not an you know unlike Hitler or Goebbels who are so committed to the Nazi ideal. Landa doesn't really give a shit about – he cares about his own situation, about power, but not necessarily about Nazism. It's whatever, whatever works for him. Right. And, and, he's always, you know. and, I, and I understand that perspective, right? But I, I also don't understand why he made that decision. That's because there's no indication to suggest that the allies are in any position of advantage over the Nazis at that given point where he would feel the need to save his own skin, thereby shifting allegiances. Like, by all accounts, he and the Nazis at that point are ahead in the in the war, right? As much as anybody can be ahead uh, <laughs> to that stage. So to see him so suddenly switch allegiances, especially after he straight-up strangles Bridget uh, von Hammerschmark, yeah. in, in the scene just prior to it, is kind of stark and sudden. And you kind of wonder, why is this guy doing this? Like, uh, you understand the benefits, but, like, there's mm-hmm. no need to, to do that at this Well, stage. and it's interesting, because I wondered myself if there was, like, an alternate ending, on an alternate ending, if he would have let, um, he would have phoned the Nazi officials and foiled the plot, and then the bastards would have been arrested and killed, and, and then... Uh, the uh, the war would have gone on. I guess it's Tarantino's way of of having the the bastards succeed without. I don't know. It's an interesting. It's an interesting. Your point is well taken. I mean, there's not really an indication as to why he would want to sell out the Nazis. Perhaps in his view, it's really he was just t- like everybody else was tired of the war, and you know, here's an opportunity to end it. And in the meanwhile, I can save my own skin. I mean, that that certainly makes because sense. Because if, let's say, if the war ended, you know, with a full Allied victory, as it did in in real life, Nazis were persecuted. So here's his way of making sure he got he gets immunity because he probably knew he would be hunted down should the Nazis lose. 
Mm, I, I I see. Like that does make sense, but it it still makes it a bit jarring in understanding why he suddenly shifts gears, seemingly out of blue. Because they spent the entire movie building up this persona of this guy is sadistic, this guy is this evil but, then force. It, but yeah. then suddenly he is willing to let that. Not not, not only not, that, if you remember. He confiscates the dynamite from Aldo Rain and then he places it in Hitler's box. Yes. Like, why does he make this decision you know. so ab- abruptly? You know what I mean? In, yeah. In the grand scheme, it's, it's almost as if maybe there's something cut there where he got wind that, you know. The only thing I would say is that he's perhaps the only Nazi throughout the movie that doesn't show an overt. Uh, allegiance to Nazism per se. I know, as I said earlier, he's interested in 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 his own well-being and his own. He likes power. He likes to be called the Jew hunter, but he's not necessarily a Nazi. That he subscribes to Nazi ideology. You know, we never see him in the movie give the Hitler salute. Uh, you know, he's not like Goebbels, who's obsessed with uh, the German ideals. I mean. Landa is just about it's just about him whatever whatever works for his favor he decides in the end that in his favor will be the downfall of the third reich but it is interesting to consider mm. and then the other thing i have in regards to the ending is the in regards to shoshana's ending and how that ties into the uh, german soldier and that false relationship that that guy tries to force like i felt that the way that that ended kind of it really is an example of almost that self-indulgence that we mentioned with Tarantino, right? Where he gets shot by her, and then suddenly he approaches the body, and then he shoots her, and there's, like, the slow-motion shot, and it's like, (laughs) why is this ending? Why is this happening out of the blue again, you know? Well, the the question is, why did that character have to die? Right, it it makes... You know... It makes no sense. I mean, sense. I guess it just it fits into the scope of the, it's, the thing is a tragedy, right? Uh, mm. I, 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 from that point of view. But otherwise, I agree. It's I didn't see the the motives for for her death per se. Right. Like it yeah. would make sense if she had died in the blaze of glory that she had created. As right. A, right. A, right. Like a lasting move for her final revenge kind of thing mm-hmm. that goes along with her cackling face on the screen as it burns yeah. down, they, that would make sense to me. But to have this relationship that isn't particularly well built up, right, uh, throughout the course of the movie, and have that happen, and have that executed the way that it was, it didn't sit particularly right with me. I, I, hmm. there, there are just some threads towards the end there where I think that this movie overall is very good up until that ending point where they decided to close off some of the threads. Like, it could have either needed a little more time to focus on specific things, or maybe you needed to cut some threads to make um, some threads connect better, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Uh, That being said, overall, I think it's certainly one of, uh, you know, as we mentioned, all of Tarantino's filmography is, is very strong. And I think uh, I, I would rank *Inglorious Bastards* among his strongest works, personally. Uh, I certainly enjoyed it very, very much when it came out. 
and I still enjoy it to this day. And uh, you know, I, I it's certainly certainly in the top five. Certainly, absolutely. At least I, I would say that it would be. Yeah, top five. I think is 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 fair. I I think I I'd, I'd go Pulp Fiction. Jackie Brown is in there. Ah, I I I think I like it better. I used to like Django better than Inglorious, but I I in rewatching this for this podcast, I it's gone up. But again, it changes over time. Like I mm-hmm. I hadn't seen this movie in years prior to this, so it was an interesting. Uh, revisit to see some of the things I didn't see before and notice some things I did, you know, uh, in, in regards to that. I, I think, again, I wish it was a little bit tighter, but overall, yeah, I agree with you. It's a good movie. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, uh, you know, that being said, go back and watch it if you haven't seen it and, and go back and watch other Tarantino movies. You know, we've chosen this specific one to go into a little bit, but they're all very well crafted and certainly, as we mentioned earlier, leaves us with great anticipation for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Right, right, which we will see Brad Pitt again uh, on screen, hopefully. Yes, hopefully perhaps in a better role, because as you, I agree with you, I didn't didn't like his his character in, in this Inglorious Bastards. Yeah, but I, I, I kind of wish that, obviously Waltz took off, I kind of wish that uh, the same happened to Melanie Laurent here, who I thought is, is pretty good. In spite mm-hmm. of being un- in spite of being underwritten, and then even Diane Kruger does really well in her limited time on screen. Again, yeah. perhaps underwritten, but again for her role in that specific movie, she doesn't need to be uh, super prominent. But I wish that they were bigger uh, relative to uh, what happened in this movie. Like, and and what do you think of just briefly <laughs> that Mike Myers cameo? Oh man, see like that. It kind of just takes you out of it. Same with the random Samuel L. Jackson narration. Right. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's unnecessary because I think that you can trust... Well, I think... Yeah. Yeah. You can trust your audience's uh, intelligence to understand what's going on. It just feels like I need to put Sam in this somehow. <laughs> you know, so I'm going to put Well, he could have played... He should have played the black projectionist if they wanted to put him in there, you know. Yeah, he could have. For sure. I... It's uh, I I I got I don't. But he don't, doesn't speak French, which is the problem. So I mean, you get paid millions of dollars to you can pick up a few lines. Yeah, yeah. I'd imagine, but <laughs> yeah, I think those those cameos kind of took me out of it a little bit. But they're not obviously not major sticking points mm-hmm. for me. But there are other problems associated with this movie. But uh, I I I don't think that this is his masterpiece. As he, as Brad Pitt so lovingly claimed at the very end of the movie, but it is a good movie overall. Uh, yeah. Any final final thoughts here before we uh, leave? Uh, no, no. Just other than uh, you know, please do 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 check it out if you haven't seen it. I, I mean, whether you think it's a great or a good movie, one thing we can agree on is that it's it's a very well made movie. Right. And, and it's and it's very well written, and uh, you know, it's just. There's just there's brilliant characters here, brilliant characters, and it's uh, it's really engaging and, and entertaining. Right, and if you're interested in uh, a similar kind of thing, well, at least somebody that they reference a lot in this movie, being the German film, uh, sorry, the Austrian filmmaker uh, uh, Pabst, uh, G.W. Pabst, mm-hmm. who did a lot of German films as well. In that era, which they reference quite a few times in *Inglorious Bastards*, again, 
this being Tarantino being a huge film nerd, if you want to check out some of his movies, uh, they are are on the Criterion channel uh, streaming right now, so you can definitely check that out if you're looking for something more, you know, deep diving into the history of it all and seeing where his, some of his influences come from, because there are certain references to that specifically too. Yeah. Uh, Pabst being a director who uh, famously directed a bunch of movies about the plight of women, which is something that we see here with uh, the cinema owners arc. Right. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, on the marquee, she also has, the, I don't know if you noticed, Nate, she has the name Leni Riefenstahl, yeah. uh, you know, a German female director, of course, not very common in the 1930s, and probably most famous for The Triumph of the Will, which is big Nazi propaganda movie that you know, is still pretty famous to this day. Mm, Influence yeah. Star Wars. That's right, throne scene. Yes. The throne room, yeah. Yes, very, yes, very much. So, so definitely check that out if you're interested as well. Uh, as Michael, as we mentioned before, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, we'll have a review up uh, sometime this weekend. Or uh, by the time you listen to this, it should be up, I should mention. Or, yeah. If not, within the... If not, it's coming up soon. <laughs> if, uh, if not, it's coming up soon, and I'm sure yeah. we'll have other discussions on Tarantino moving forward. You know, this might be the second last time we see him in a featured film uh, as a director. So, you know, savor it while it lasts. So, uh, go back, watch his films, and uh, where can they find you, Michael? I'm at uh, Maestro Michael 2 on Twitter, and of course, my articles on BeforeTheCyborgs.com. Yes, and I am also at BeforeTheCyborgs.com, and you can find me at Nate the Cyborg. Uh, thank you for listening and uh, if you're interested we'll be doing similar type stuff hopefully weekly but uh, if you enjoyed this give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and uh, with that uh, take us out Michael right uh, well, well, what's, a, what's one of the lines from uh, what's one of the most famous lines from Tarantino's movies uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think I had something clever in mind but I don't uh, whatever yeah. I, I wouldn't consider this our masterpiece. I think we're still building towards it in yes. terms of podcasting, but we'll get there, you know, eventually. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to that point. Yeah, well, I know I know how to close it out. Uh, it's, uh, we, we, hope you've, we hope you've had uh, fun listening to our show, and as, as Landa said in Inglorious Pastors, it's a bingo. <laughs> it's, so, a, it's a bingo. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Right. Enjoy your milk, guys. <laughs>